Mitchell, High Tide in the Dream Time. I think this is episode 55. A welcome escape from writing. Um, this week, you know, some interesting things have happened. And, you know, I always respond to the audience because when I get a certain number of listens, I always decide to make another podcast and start thinking about what's popping up in my mind. And you know, this week's been really interesting um, in that I was watching a documentary on Yogananda who wrote Autobiography of a Yogi. And you now I was also seeing Deepak Chopra getting super excited about psychedelics as he once got super excited about quantum physics which he also knew very little about. Um, and I was thinking of the way that Easterners have um, sold their spirituality to us in the West in a way. They've promoted their spirituality as somehow superior to our own experience. Um, and I had a very, you know, I had a very clear experience of this once um, where I, I you know, I, I studied uh, Zen meditation once with this very um, serious Zen priest, uh, John Buxbazen. And when I first started studying with him, he, you know, he would take a moment, some time after everybody meditated and talk to them about their meditation. And I went and I sat with him and he laughed at me and he said, what are you doing? And I've been meditating for about 20 years at that point. And I said, what do you mean? Meditating. And he said, no, no, no. He goes, the way you're sitting, 95% of your attention is being put in on to <laughs> being cross-legged and being in a half lotus or a full lotus. And that's all you're doing because you're a big guy. You know, you're a big guy. You are not some little Indian man who's been meditating his whole life. And it really doesn't come natural to you to sit like that. So why don't you just take a cushion and put it below your sacrum and kneel? And I was like, really? And he goes, yeah. He goes, that's not meditating. Being cross-legged is not meditating. That's, uh, that's some Eastern fantasy about meditating. Um, why don't you try it this way? And so I went out and I got a cushion like that and meditating became 75% easier because I wasn't meditating the way I'd seen Ramana Maharshi do it. And the person who taught me to meditate was a guy named Jack Cornfield who, you know, um, size doesn't matter as far as realization goes, but I think Jack was about five foot, still is about five foot six and probably weighed about 120 pounds. And it was quite easy for him to sit like that. And he's who had originally taught me how to meditate. And, you know, it made me think about how we want to subscribe to these 
manners of doing things that have been done in the East because, you know, somehow it's superior to our own Western consciousness. And we've kind of been fed that. We've been told that, you know, when the reason that so many uh, Indian teachers came to America was because the laws changed. Um, and they were able to, to come here where previously they hadn't been able to. And once they could come here, they came here and they taught what they knew, which is great. You know, I myself have been very moved by Vivekananda's work and uh, Ramana Maharshi. These are great geniuses. But more than their genius, what people became excited about was their exoticness, was that they weren't from here and they didn't think like we thought here and they hadn't lived like we live here and they hadn't been raised like we're raised here and somehow we granted them a power that that we don't have in ourselves because they were exotic uh deepak chopra is an example of this because he's an endocrinologist that was his training and then he kind of figured out that if he could sell this kind of eastern mysticism along with his his health stuff people would really respond to that and people always have responded to that in the west you know people have always gotten excited about exotic teachers and even in psychedelics i see this as people get really excited about ayahuasca you know people get really excited about going to the amazon somebody got in touch with me this week and wants me to make a psilocybin retreat center in the amazon in costa rica and we all fall in love with the exotic. You know, in the 1960s, people got really excited about Carlos Castaneda's work because it took place with a shaman in Mexico who they actually had him in a, in a tribe of people that doesn't even have peyote shamanism. He didn't even get that right in the stories that he made up. But people bought those books by the millions. And people are rushing down to the Amazon to do ayahuasca. And people love yoga, which is really heavily influenced by the British gymnastics that the Brits brought to uh, India when they colonized it. You know, the yoga that people practice in the West is mostly British gymnastics. <laughs> it's, not, it's not the yoga that people practice in India or have, has been there for thousands of years. But because it's Indian, it, because it appears Indian, um, people can't wait to do it because they think they're going to get some kind of high that they can't get in their own lives. And one of the things that I saw in this Yogananda uh, documentary I watched was his, his assertion, you know, he loved Los Angeles. He really thought that... Um, Los Angeles was the Varnasi of the West, which is in India, you go there and you get cremated in the Ganges and you reach enlightenment and you're suffering. And he just thought like all that was available in Los Angeles. And he spent a lot of his adult life around here in uh, Pasadena and I think Encinitas. And he died here and he knew he was gonna die and he chose to die here. And what he said is wherever you are, I think I'm paraphrasing. Wherever you find yourself, that is the body of God. Wherever you look out the window right now and you find yourself, that's God's body. Some universal intelligence has created that topography 
even if you're in a city, that land has been created by some intelligent design. If you're in the hills, those hills have been created according to some intelligent design. If you're by the sea, that has been created by some intelligent design too. And so if you're in the hills of Santa Monica or in Malibu, the same intelligence that created the Himalayas or the Himalayas, as one of my teachers once taught me to say it, created the Santa Monica Mountains, the powers behind the moving tectonic plates. A lot of things happened in the universe for the earth to be formed and then for tectonic plates to shift and for those mountains to form. And those mountains in Santa Monica are no less imbued with the intelligence that forms everything as the mountains in the Himalayas are. And because we have fallen in love with the exotic, because we have fallen in love with the indigenous, we have kind of lost our own capacity to perceive that in the moment and to be imbued with it in our awareness and to be enraptured by it. Because right now we should all be able to be able, we shall be able to be enraptured by it like we would be if we were in an ashram in Rishikesh or if we were in a ayahuasca center in the Amazon or we are with some Native American tribes in the Southwest, we have all the same capacities in our consciousness that these people do because we're human, just like they are. And we're part of a collective that they're part of. And we have access right now, right here, to everything that they have access to. And I can't exaggerate enough. There is a lot of do-it-yourself awareness that you can do. Just like you don't need a trainer to work in a gym, to work out in a gym, you can figure it all out yourself. Read some books. See some videos. You don't need to pay somebody $150 an hour to tell you how to bench press. You can teach yourself and you can teach yourself the awareness of what is the divine intelligence that forms everything that's all around you. That if you're missing it, you're missing out on the most nurturing presence that you could ever access in your life. It's all around you right now. It's all around me right now. And it is aware of how aware or not aware we are of it. And it's been my experience that most people's suffering is exactly proportional to how aware or not aware they are of the presence of that unit of intelligence in their environment, in the chair they're sitting on, in the phone that they're listening to right now, or um, on the computer. It's in there. It's in there in the breeze 
blowing the shades open in the window through the sill. You can hear it. It's there in the voices you hear outside. It's there in the breeze you can feel on your skin. It's there in the laughter of children. It's there in the last moments of life in someone you love. It's inside this physical life and mostly outside of it. And what mostly brings it into this physical life is your awareness of it. You're a receiver for it. Just like your satellite radio in your car is a receiver for your favorite music. You're a receiver of this awareness. It wants you to know that it knows about you and that it's concerned about you and that it's invested in your well-being and that it has a lot of confidence in your ability to transform yourself in the highest ways so that you can be the most benefit to everybody around you. I'm 100% sure of that. I was working with a young man yesterday, really young. And he would, he'd come in, you know, his, this is late teens. And he was really bummed about the state of the world, about global warming, about um, corruption. And I really reminded him that there's nothing to hate that it's just a waste of time hating that. But that he could do what he could do to make it better. That he could use the unique gift that is his life to animate a a better world. And he doesn't have to fix the whole thing. He can just fix what he can, what he comes in contact with, with compassion for other people, with innovating new ways to solve problems, with feeling inspired by knowing that his life had a purpose that was unique and original. I don't know how much it helped, but I felt like it was really a step in the right direction discussing that. And I think part of My awareness this week is is how we make mysticism foreign to us. We make it something from the East. Or we make it something from the Amazon. Or we make it something because we're in America that the Native Americans have access to that we don't. But we do. All our origins are the same. I can't say that enough times that all of our origins are the same. 
Nobody has a monopoly on access to our origins and the intelligence that it grants them. I don't. Deepak Chopra doesn't. Yogananda didn't. Vivekananda didn't. Terence McKenna didn't. Love to talk about psychedelics. Um, Timothy Leary didn't. It's a total democracy. Mysticism is a democracy. You don't need to rely on other people for it. You just need to train yourself to be aware of it. To not be drawn out of it by the internet. Or culture, which is not your friend. Culture is just the current collective agreement on what's important. And that changes all the time. So whenever you try and keep up on that, you are, I am, subscribing to the temporal and not the eternal. I had another friend this week who was talking about, they loved London, all the things about London they loved. And, you know, London's a great place. It is. Very special. A lot of special cities in the world. London, New York, Paris, Rome, Los Angeles, San Francisco, um, Boston. There's tons of them. And, you know, more than places at a subatomic level, they are states of mind. And there are things going on. There are transformations going on in different places. That are, there are different kinds of transformations. Different things go on in Los Angeles than go on in San Francisco. And different things go on in Paris than go on in London. But we explain it to ourselves through topography. And not through states of mind. But that's just something that our senses and our brains do because it's all states of mind and the topography of mysticism is a state of mind like if you think you can only be mystical in Rishikesh with a guru then you're going to expend a lot of energy getting there or San Francisco. But we can all have a mystical awareness exactly where we are. On the 405 in Los Angeles. On the 280 in Palo Alto. On the Brooklyn Bridge in New York City or in Brooklyn, in the Lincoln Tunnel in New York City. On the 90 in Boston. All these places, the same consciousness, the same awareness, the same nurturance 
of the eternal rather than the temporal is available to us right now. You know, it's, it, I always think it's funny because one of my favorite movies is Apocalypse Now. And the screenwriter of that, John Milius, it was a, funny because he hated hippies. <laughs> and in the 60s, people said Nirvana now. And it's so easy to slag on the 60s and the hippie dippiness of it. And the seemingly temporal nature of that culture. But something opened up then. And what opened up then is available now. You can still do your businesses great. You can still do your job great. You can still parent great. You can still run a company wonderfully. But if you are aware of this intelligence and you are in dialogue with it, you're in intercourse with it, you are going to get information about yourself and your life and the people around you and the situations you find yourself in and the contrib contribution that you can make that is going to serve you and everybody around you. I work with so many people who've lost their relationship with this awareness and they rely on other people for it. Sometimes they rely on me for it. And I don't ever want to be somebody's conduit for this information. I want to plug them back into it so that they're getting that information themselves because everybody has that capacity. Everybody listening to this has that capacity. And yeah, you may need to meditate to connect with it. You may need to do yoga. You may need to read some kind of inspiring scripture. But if you train yourself to be aware of it in the moment and to see it all around you and to listen to how it speaks to you, you're going to learn its language. And its language is not English. I'm 100% sure of that. And how it knows you is probably different from how you know yourself. Because you know yourself through your stories about yourself, through who your mom and dad were, your siblings, where you grew up, what you're good at, what you're not good at. And that is a sliver of what you are. But most of us are hanging out in there most of the time, including myself. Though I'm lucky because I work with my dreams and they sort of make me aware of other parts and anybody listening to this should do that too. That's the, that's the royal road to getting there out of just yourself. Um, but I remember I worked with a client once, not too long ago, and I may have said this before, and she went, oh, oh, I get it. Thinking is 1% of myself. It's 1% of what I am. But I'm trying to solve 100% of my problems with 1% of 
of what I am. All of us can look around right now and get a sense of the rest of us. All other 99 or 97 or 95 or 93% we're not usually aware of because you are it. That intelligence that's created the environment that you're in has created you. And just like it creates trees that you're looking at to get the most sun, that's why there's all those leaves on them growing the way they're growing. You're designed to be the best transmitter of this intelligence that you can be. That is fantastic to know. That's a revelation. And you're an instrument of revelation. You always have been. You just may not have always been turned on. But you can be at any moment. And the mysticism we have in the West, the Aldous Huxley's, the William Blake's, They had all these same experiences that they had in the East. They just had different ways of communicating it. Even Jim Morrison, who was a florid alcoholic, had access and communicated it in the culture using one of the cultural tools, which was a rock band. You don't have to be in an orange robe with a turban on or to have a feathered headdress, or to be singing songs in Spanish to grant people access for that. It's right here, and it's right now. What have they done to the earth? What have they done to our fair sister? Ravaged and plundered, ripped her and bit her, stuck her with knives in the side of the dawn, and tried her with fences and dragged her down. I hear a very gentle sound. With your ear down to the ground. We want the world.